Take your Bible and open to uh, the book of Romans, Romans chapter 12. And we're in verse 17, and I'll read through the end of the chapter. Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 17. Paul says, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Tonight we're going to come to the end of our um, time together here in the book of uh, the twelfth chapter of the book of Romans. I think it's been a wonderful uh, study. I know that it has created some discussion amongst us, and many of you have spoken to me how the Lord has uh, challenged you with the teaching that has been presented in this chapter. I think at times it's been a very difficult chapter uh, for us to take uh, because God is calling us to interact with everyone we come in contact with through the lens of His mercies in our own life. He's calling us to present to him our entire life as an act of true worship. He's calling us not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, uh, to, to think biblically, act biblically, believe biblically. He's called us to read, to understand, to study his word, uh, again, to live transformed lives, and, and so that we can in time live good in the perfect will of God. Uh, as I said last time, Romans 12 has been kind of like a trip to the heart surgeon, and it's the Word of God that's opened our hearts. It's laid bare who we are and who we ought to be, who we should be in Christ, calling us to that higher standard. And last time we were working our way uh, through the ending section here in Romans 12, I said the apostles, Paul gives us three uh, main headings, three things that we are to do uh, when we come in contact with the issue of those who are against us, those who are enemies. Uh, how do we live with them? How do you deal with those who, again, are truly against you? Uh, verses 17 and 18, we saw that uh, Paul says we're to seek peace. We're to be peacemakers. Verse 17, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men, Paul says. So again, what do you do when somebody intentionally wrongs you? What do you how do you act when somebody does intentional evil uh, against you? And Paul says, demonstrate the fact that Christ is in you. Don't act like the natural man. Don't act as you would like to in the, in the flesh. Don't retaliate. Keep your eyes upon the cross. Keep fixed upon the mercies of God in your own life and live as the new creature in Christ that you are. And represent your God well. Love like he loved. Demonstrate the fact that you are like him, that you again have been transformed by him. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Demonstrate the fact that you are indeed sons of your Father who's in heaven. And then Paul says, respect what is right in the sight of all men. As I said last time, what Paul is telling us is that we must stop and think in advance of what our response is going to be to evil. We are to think uh, ahead of time, but before we act. We we're not to act impulsively. As Christians, we're not to respond to the impulses of our flesh, but we're to walk by the Spirit. We're to be controlled always by the Spirit. And if we're walking by the Spirit, controlled by the Spirit... Uh, again, we need to stop and think and, again, not respond in the flesh. Uh, we need to act like who we are in Christ is what he's saying. 
therefore in advance, having thought this through, when presented with evil uh, against our person, we're going to choose to do the right thing. The honorable thing, the good thing, in the plain view of all men to see, the NIV says, be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. And that's really the idea. Do what's right in the eyes of everyone. Paul says, look, that not only demonstrates the fact that Christ is in you by never paying back evil for evil, but if you're careful to do what is right in the eyes of all men, all men will see the fact that indeed you are different and that Christ is indeed in you. So again, the Paul, Apostle Paul first presents the negative, then the positive, right? Do you see that? The negative, then the positive. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. That's the negative. Then the positive is be careful to do what is right in the eyes of every man. And honestly, it's difficult. It's hard not to respond when somebody does us wrong. But if we could just do the negative, and then God, as he gives us grace, uh, we advance to the positive, how much better things would be, right? How much better things would be uh, all, all around us, uh, how much greater a place this would be, how, how our relations with others would improve if we just lived up to the negative, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. And that actually means never pay back evil to evil for anyone, right? You don't have to get involved in a confrontation, right? You don't have to respond that way. And then as God gives grace, you advance to the positive, where he says, being careful to do what is right in the eyes of all men. And of course, we can't do that in Christ. And the closer we walk with Christ, the more we consider God's mercy and God's kindness to us in our own Christ. We can do what God is calling us to do as his children. Then in verse 18, Paul says, if it's possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. And I told you the Bible is very practical. It's a realistic book. He's not demanding us to do the impossible. Look, he says, again, verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Because what he's saying, at times, peace is not possible. Peace is not possible because some men live in this world in such a manner it's completely impossible to be at peace with them. And the point that Paul is making here is that Christians, we must never be the cause of the problem. Uh, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. So from our side, from our standpoint, we're to make peace. We're to be on the side of peace. We're to choose not to enter into conflict. So far as it depends on you, uh, be at peace with all men. Now, I told you that Paul's not making a call here to peace at all costs. Uh, that's, it's not a call to unconditional peace. <clears throat> but again, <clears throat> excuse me, because again, God has first and foremost called us to purity. He's called us to do things that are honorable, that, that are just, that are right. And, and those things come before seeking peace. Because again, they're evil and wicked men in the world, unrighteous men, that, that peace with them would be impossible. Not only just impossible, it would be wrong. And, and so sometimes peace is not possible. If the call to peace is in the context of setting aside doctrinal truth, uh, we're not to pursue peace at the expense of God's word. We're not to participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness. In fact, the Bible says, Ephesians, we're, we're to expose them. We're to, we're to expose that kind of uh, uh, evil, unfruitful deeds of darkness. The Bible calls us to contend earnestly for the faith that has been once for all delivered to the saints. So we're not to compromise with ever to achieve some kind of inappropriate, hollow imitation peace. But the first response that we're to demonstrate towards those who are enemies, if it is all possible, we want to be peacemakers. We want to be seekers of peace. Now, the second response, again, that we are to deal with those who are against us, those who are, are actively 
in opposition to us, our enemies, if you will, found in verses 19 and 20. And Paul still says here that we're to leave room for God. 19 and 20, leave room for God. Verse 19, never take your own vengeance, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will pay, says the Lord. Verse 20, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. So again, we find Paul presenting this truth first in the negative, verse 19, and then in the positive, verse 20. So let's look at the first statement. He, he says, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. Now, the King James and the New King James say, dearly beloved or beloved, avenge not yourself, but rather give a place unto wrath. And that phrase, give place, in both of those versions, really make, means make room for or, or leave room for. But, but the problem with those, those translations, King James and New King James, is that the translators left out a very important word, and it's the word the, before the word wrath. And most of the modern new translations have picked that up, and they affirm that really what's going on here, the wrath it's talking about here is the wrath, right? It, it's the wrath of God. Uh, the ESV says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room to the wrath of God. Uh, NAS says, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. Uh, NIV says, Do not take revenge, my friends, leave room for God's wrath. And, and I, without that understanding, there have been a lot of uh, errors made over the years, uh, leaving that one little word out. Many various uh, uh, commentators and various thoughts uh, to exactly what does it mean to give uh, place to wrath. Uh, there have some who have come and suggested that Instead of avenging yourself in a state of anger, you wait, right? You let things pass till you cool down, and then you act. I mean, some people have actually <clears throat> proposed that as a, as a possibility. You don't act in the heat of passion, but you wait till you calm down, and then you take your revenge. Uh, others have suggested uh, that when it says give place to wrath, that you allow your adversary to vent his rage <clears throat> upon you no matter what he does. You don't defend yourself. You don't retaliate. You just allow him to continue to rage at you and fury at you, and you do nothing. Uh, you just let him inflict pain upon you and, and let him do anything he likes. But both of those interpretations that have been put forth in the past can't possibly be acceptable because they're not biblical. Uh, and, and the immediate context, uh, the, the context establishes the translation correctly as this wrath, when it says, uh, give place to the wrath, it has to refer to the wrath of God because verse 19 goes on and says this, <clears throat> for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So that's what he's talking about. So in the context, the meaning of the wrath there is established, again, in the modern translations. We are not to avenge or take revenge on our, our, our adversaries, but we are to make room or leave room for the wrath of God. And, and the reason is, as it's written, uh, uh, it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Paul's quoting out of the Old Testament, is quoting out of Deuteronomy uh, 32, verse 35. Uh, God says, vengeance is mine and retribution. In due time their foot will slip, uh, for the day of their calamity is near. Uh, and uh, and uh, the impending things are hastening upon them. Uh, uh, the NIV says, it is mine to avenge. I will repay. Their two time, their foot will slip. The day of disaster is near. Their doom rushes upon them. So again, vengeance biblically belongs to God, not to men. That's what Paul's saying. Vengeance belongs to God, not to men. Now, the word vengeance means to vindicate one's rights, do, do justice, avenge a thing, punish. But in times of personal attack, Paul says, we are to never take our own personal revenge. 
Paul's saying we're, we're not to go around and punish people for their evil. Uh, we're not to go out and by our own efforts try to exact personal justice. And we're not called to do that. Rather, what we're called to do is to leave room for the wrath of God. Let God do his work. Let God do this, right? We're to let the Lord deal with evil. We are not to return evil for evil one to anyone. Now, again, the Lord says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Right? That's the promise that God has made. I will repay. So we're to let the Lord do that. We're to let him deal with sin. Because the reality is no sinner is ever going to escape his just judgment. And when it says that uh, in that phrase, vengeance is mine, I will repay, uh, the word repay means to give back, like a, or to give back or to pay back. So again, when we are treated wrongly, we're to leave room for the wrath of God. We're not to seek our own personal vengeance because that's not our deal, that's not our work. It's God's, it's his business, it's his prerogative. Uh, vengeance belongs to God. Punishment belongs to God, not to men. Now, before we go further, I probably need to stop and just uh, say something that at least I think it's self-evident, but I want to make sure it's self-evident for you uh, that, it, that it's clear. What we're talking about here is on a personal level. That's what we're talking about. When somebody does personal evil against you, how do you deal with it? We're not speaking on a state level. We're not speaking on a societal level. Uh, I spoke to that issue just a little bit last week, and we're going to speak to it in, in a greater detail when we go to Romans chapter 13. But God has ordained government to deal with evil in the world. God has ordained government to bear the sword as his minister, uh, the avenger of wrath upon those who practice evil. So God has ordained government to uphold his law. So, so this is not talking about societal. This is not talking about uh, state level. This is talking about personal. And, and, and it's also, it's not talking about, Paul's not talking about some kind of pacifism where you just leave evil to go unchecked, unpunished in the world. And he's not even really talking about allowing evil to go unchecked on, on a personal level. Uh, uh, um, uh, if someone's committing an unlawful act against you, uh, against your person, uh, you have a duty to uphold God's law. You have a duty to uphold God's law if someone's committing an act, uh, an awful unlawful act against you. You're to uphold God's commands. For example, the Bible says, thou shalt not murder. So somebody breaks into your house and they attempt to murder you or murder your, uh, somebody in your family, what do you do? Now, historically, people have taught in the church, some people have taught and believed that you do nothing. You just let the evil intruder do whatever they want to do. And pacifism teaches that it's wrong at all times and under every circumstance to kill. So again, somebody comes into your house uh, and, and you resist them, you choose to fight, uh, you choose to fight in a, in a war for any country, then you're sinning grievously against God. That's what pacifism teaches. And the pacifist uh, uh, reasons that they take this view because the commandment of God is you shall not murder or you shall not kill. And Jesus said if somebody uh, smites you on your right cheek or hits you on your right cheek, then turn to them the other. So the reason, uh, that's the reason the pacifist uh, gives for never resisting evil under any circumstance across the board, period, exclamation point. But that's, it's not that simple. The issue is not that simple. And that kind of line of reasoning is really pulling text out of context and, and trying to make statements out of the Bible that doesn't say what it says, and you're trying to make it say what you think it says instead of comparing Scripture to Scripture. 
Because when you stop and realize the same God who said thou shalt not murder is the same God that commanded the, Israel, the children of Israel to absolutely uh, eliminate, to exterminate the Amalekites, to purge the evil from among them. Listen to this, 1 Samuel 15, 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel and how he set himself against him on his way while he was coming up from Egypt. Now go strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has. Do not spare him, but put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox, sheep, camel, and donkey. So God was angry with Saul because, Gaul, because Saul uh, didn't do it. He was commanded by God. Uh, he, he spared some of the uh, evil enemy. Therefore, God, was, uh, God punishes Saul for not fulfilling uh, his command to kill everybody. So again, it's not just as simple as God says don't murder, so we don't kill, we, don't, we never retaliate against evil. It's, it's not that simple of an issue. Uh, we, we are, uh, it's not as simple of an issue as we're to never take up arms or defend ourselves against anybody who comes in evil against us. Again, there's a difference between the personal and societal. And, and again, personally, we're not to harm one another. Personally, we're not to be the aggressor. Personally, we're not to seek personal vengeance or revenge on somebody. But again, we do have a, a responsibility to uphold the law of God. We do have a responsibility to defend those who are defenseless and not just live under the oppression of evil and not allow evil to do whatever it desires to do, whatever it wishes to do. So I think we got to really stop and think carefully about these kinds of issues and, and pray about them and carefully examine the Scripture to see what it says what the Bible teaches on these issues, and, and not pull texts out here and kind of make up doctrines and issues that really don't exist, as people have done, and people want us uh, to believe this is, uh, again, what the side teaches, like on pacifism, for example. The, the, the Bible never calls us to take a passive stance against wrong. The Bible never calls us to take a passive stance against evil. The Bible does call us, again, to uphold God's law. And it is wrong to murder. So somebody comes and attempts to commit an act of violence against another person. Therefore, God's law commands that we stop that evil that's about to take place. Not just let it occur. So I believe the Bible teaches that you have the right and responsibility before God to defend yourself and defend your family. But defending yourself and defending your family is different than taking revenge. They're two different issues. So we're to live at peace with all men as far as it's possible with us, as far as it depends upon us. And again, as I said, it's not always possible, uh, but we're not to let uh, evil and wickedness have its reign. We're not to let evil and wickedness have its reign. So again, verse 19 here, Paul's speaking on a personal level. We're speaking about personal vengeance, uh, not self-defense, or coming to the defense of someone else uh, who's being violated. We're speaking about uh, the fact that what you are to do when someone personally wrongs you, how do you respond to it? How do you react to it? Do you personally seek vengeance? Do you personally avenge yourself? Do you personally punish the wrongdoer? And Paul says categorically on all those questions, the answer is no. Never take your own vengeance, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Now, perhaps it would be helpful to put the whole situation back in the context in which it was written. Paul writes the letter uh, to the Roman Christians, and it's a world that's much different than our world and the world in which we live, and so it's helpful, like I said this morning, to understand the context of when things are written so you can hear it in the ears of the uh, original hearers. Um, we live in a time where we're consumed with what? 
self, right? Where we're consumed with self, we're consumed with personal liberty, we're concerned with personal uh, peace at, at all costs. But the time in which Paul writes this letter to the Romans, it's a time of totalitarianism. And to convert from uh, one pagan religion at, a, uh, at the, one of the pagan religions at the time to say that Jesus is Lord, that's going to put you at risk uh, against the culture, against the, the, the ruling governmental people, against the religious leaders of the time. That, that's a risky thing to say Jesus is Lord. And that's probably why uh, Peter writes in 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial that comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Uh, again, Paul's saying, look, in the time in which we live under totalitarian rule, whether it's the government or totalitarian rule of a false religious system, uh, it's not strange for Christians to be persecuted. That's why he says elsewhere, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, what? Will be persecuted. So again, the, throughout the history of the church, not the West in which we live, in the time in which we live, but throughout the history of the church, it's not been strange that Christians have been persecuted for the faith. In fact, in the world in which we live today, in much of the world, Many places in the world, there are Christians who are openly persecuted, and, and persecution is on the rise. So again, the question is, how do you react when persecution comes? How, how do you act when someone does you wrong? How do you, how do you act when someone commits evil towards you because of your faith in Christ? So again, the question is, are you to seek your own revenge or to seek your own vengeance? Are you to seek to punish the evildoers uh, for the evil that they have acted against us? And again, Paul says, no, leave room for God. Let God distribute justice. Leave room for God's wrath. He is the judge of the whole world, right? He is the one who alone is the only judge. And vengeance belongs to him. He'll settle all accounts. He'll make all things right in due time. Now, the reason why vengeance belongs to God may not be explicitly in the text, but certainly is implicit uh, in the text. The reason that vengeance belongs to God and not to man is that we are sinful, we're sinful, we're all sinners, and we have an inadequate judgment. We're not fit to judge other men because, again, we're so self-centered, and we easily see sin in other people's lives, and we defend the very same sin in our own life. Therefore, as fallen men in sin, we're inadequate judges to judge other men. We're, we're biased in rendering judgment. Therefore, it's very dangerous for us to take punishment into our own hands. Again, punishment belongs to the just God of the universe the one who is always holy, the one who, is always, who always acts in control in his judgment, the one who's always just in everything that he does, uh, unlike men. So again, what do you do when someone treats you wrong? What do you do when someone does evil against you? What do you do when someone brings persecution against you for being a, a Christian? Paul says, leave room for God. Leave room for God. Never take your own vengeance, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Now, uh, leave room for the wrath of God. We could probably talk for a long time on the issue of wrath, uh, but in the instant, uh, interest of time, we won't do that. Let me just say a couple things. What's God's wrath? Let me give you a, a real quick definition. God's wrath is his settled anger towards sin. God's wrath is his settled anger towards sin, and it's expressed in the repayment of just, suitable, and holy vengeance upon the guilty sinner. God's wrath is his settled anger towards sin. It's expressed in repayment of a just, suitable, and holy vengeance upon the guilty sinner. Again, God is the one who exercises his wrath. 
Bible says in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men whose hold down or suppress the truth and unrighteousness. So God's wrath is his settled, determined response to sin. And it is continually being poured out, continually being revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now God's wrath and God's righteous wrath, his anger is never out of control. Right? And he, he like men's, he, his anger is never out of control. His wrath is just, and he never takes vengeance upon the innocent. He only repays the guilty. The wrath of man is often out of control. The wrath of God is always under control. It's God's settled response and anger towards sin. The wrath of man sometimes is unjust. The wrath of God is always full of justice. The wrath of God is always holy. It's always uh, a righteous anger. So Paul says, look, because we're men, because we're sinners, when somebody does us wrong, when somebody intentionally does us evil, we are to stand aside, as it were, and we are to allow God to work. We are to leave room for God, to leave room for God's wrath, to leave room for his justice. And, and I think when we do that, we have to also at the same time be careful with our heart attitudes. We've got to make sure that our hearts are right when we do that very thing, make sure that our hearts aren't wrong. So if we have in our minds that the fact that when somebody does us evil, we're leaving room for the wrath of God, then that punishment is going to be for them even greater, or we hope that punishment for them is going to be even greater, then that tells us that our hearts are not as they should be. Our, our hearts are not Christ-like. When the Lord Jesus was persecuted, we've been talking about that a lot lately, when the Lord Jesus was persecuted, when he was reviled, when he suffered, when he was threatened, what did he do? What did he do? Did he strike out in personal vengeance? The answer is no. When he was reviled, he, rever he reviled not, right? He, didn't return, he did not return the reviling. He just trusted himself to the one who judges righteously. He prayed for those who persecuted him. Didn't defend himself, didn't retaliate. Just committed the whole thing to God the Father. He left room for God to act. He left room for the wrath of God. So again, when we leave room for the wrath of God, it has to be done again in the right spirit. Uh, question, does anybody in the room remember uh, a, a name, Graham Staines? Anybody? Just curious. Nobody? It's been a long time ago. Graham Staines. He and his family were missionaries in India. And they made international headlines in January uh, in 1999. It's 24 years ago. That's why most of you don't remember. Nobody remembers. Uh, they made international headlines January 1999 in India when Graham and his two sons, Philip and Timothy, Philip is 10, Timothy is 6, they were mobbed by a radical group of uh, Hindus trapped inside their vehicle. They set the vehicle on fire and they were burned alive. And when they recovered the charred bodies of the Father and his two sons, they were each holding on to each other. Now, Graham Staines and his family had spent 34 years serving the people of India in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was the director of a large uh, leprosy uh, mission. He lives behind, left behind at that time his wife Gladys and, her, uh, and their 13-year-old daughter, a young gal named Esther. So a few days after the martyrdom of her husband and her sons, Gladys Staines had the opportunity to speak to the, the press, to the newspaper, and the question would be, what would she say? What would she do? How would she act? Would she seek vengeance? Would she cry out for vengeance towards the murderers of uh, her husband and her, her two young boys? 
Would she leave the country? Many people thought she'd leave the country that had murdered her family and go back to their homeland of Australia because this is what most people would probably have done. But she said, no, I'm not leaving because God had called us as a family to, to India. She said she and Esther were going to stay there. Then she said this. I have only one message for the people of India. I'm not bitter, neither am I angry, but I have one great desire that each citizen of this country should establish a personal relationship with Jesus Christ who gave his life for their sins. Let us burn hatred and spread the flame of Christ's love. My husband and my children have sacrificed their lives for this nation, and India is my home. I hope to be here and continue to serve the needy. When Esther, again, who was 13 at the time, when she was asked how she felt about the murder of her father, 13-year-old Esther said this, I praise the Lord that my father found, or I, I praise the Lord that he found my father worthy to die for him. 13 years old. My mother says we're not going anywhere. Now, I just pray that each person in India would come to a knowledge of Jesus Christ as their Savior. That's why we came. That's why my family gave their lives. The artist says, I praise the Lord in this situation that the Lord counted my father worthy to die for him. That's spiritual maturity, not only by the mom, but obviously spiritual maturity by the 13-year-old. That's a mom, a widow, and her daughter living life clearly in view of the mercies of God in their own life. That's a family who's not just talking about Jesus. That's a family in which Christ has truly transformed them. That's a family that has committed themselves to be peacemakers, to never repay, repay evil for evil to anyone. That's a family that's committed to doing what is right in the sight of all men. That's a family that has committed themselves not to take personal vengeance, but to leave room for the just and holy God to act on their behalf. That's Christ-like love. And while on a personal level, um, the Staines family had forgiven those who murdered uh, the husband and those two boys, uh, God's law demands justice. And those who committed the crimes should be brought to trial, and, and indeed they were. Uh, Thirteen men were caught, twelve sentenced to life in prison. The ringleader was uh, sentenced to death. And all along in, in the court proceedings, the Staines family, the wife, the daughter, and the brother of the murdered husband, kept asking the court for clemency for, for those who had murdered their family members. And the one man who had been sentenced to death, his verdict was eventually commuted to life in prison. And Christian leaders responded at the time that the impact that this had uh, uh, on the community of, uh, uh, of this area in India, the impact that Gladys and Esther made was amazingly powerful, obviously. Many Hindus came to Christ. Because many Hindus, many people there in uh, uh, India at the time looked at the whole situation and asked, who would do this? I mean, why would a wealthy man leave his country, serve lepers in India for 34 years? Why would his wife and daughter completely forgive uh, the killers of their family? Why did the wife and the daughter choose to stay and serve the poor? Who, who is this God they say they believe in? Could it believe be but what we, <clears throat> or could it be what we've been thinking or what we've been told about Christians might be wrong? Maybe it's all lies. And, and could it be that this Jesus they keep talking about really is the real thing? Could he be the truth? 
One observer to the situation noted the people of India are seeing embodied in the stains another worldly perspective. Or I'll say it again. The people of India uh, are seeing embodied in the stains family an other worldly perspective in strength in Christ that stands in stark contrast to the dark fatalistic and personal gods of Hinduism. They weren't looking for that opportunity to glorify Christ, but they took that opportunity to glorify Christ. And as far as I know, I'm, I checked, I can only find up to about two years ago, uh, Gladys is still serving, and uh, her, her daughter's still faithful. They, she's gotten married and has a child, but, but they haven't departed or recanted. Because again, they're looking at all of life, even the tragedy brought upon them because of their testimony for Christ is an opportunity to give glory to Christ. They're seeing the entirety of their life through the lens of the mercies of God in their own life. So what do we do, right? This is real-world practical stuff. This is not ethereal. What do you do when somebody does you wrong? What do you do when somebody does evil against you on a personal level? Verse 17 again, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. That's the negative. Respect what is right in the sight of men, if possible, as far as it depends on you. Be at peace with all men. That's the positive. Verse 19, never take your own vengeance, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Again, that's the negative. And then again, you have a positive, verse 20. <clears throat> if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For on so doing, you will heat burning coals on his head. So how do you treat your enemy? Answer, in Christ-like love. The wise man out of the book of Proverbs said, take advantage of every opportunity for your enemy. And when your enemy does you wrong, take advantage of every opportunity to do him good. That's what Paul is quoting. He's quoting out of Proverbs chapter 25. Take every opportunity to do good to your enemy. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. That's showing mercy. And both justice and mercy are found in verses 19 and 20. So somebody mistreats you, you don't take justice into your own hands, you don't seek your own vengeance, you leave room for God, you let God's justice work, God will set all things right, evil is going to be punished, he's promised to do that, but if you have an opportunity to do your enemy good, you do so. And perhaps you, demonstrating mercy to your enemy, perhaps that might prick their conscience so they too might come to the knowledge of the truth and come to the same Savior that you believe in, same Savior you have hope in. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, he says, you will heap burning coals upon his head. What in the world does that mean? Now, some have uh, wrongly taught that this means that you do good to your enemy as a way to make the punishment against him greater uh, if they don't respond to you for uh, doing good. Some people think that you're deliberately giving food and drink to your enemy, knowing that he will not respond, and God's going to punish them even more. So again, the wrong view, according to this wrong view, your motivation is punishment of your enemy. You do good, and you hope that God punishes your enemy even more. Uh, that's what this wrong view says. But again, that's completely against the whole spirit of the text, uh, the whole spirit of, of the section of Scripture. 
And against the whole section of Scripture that Paul's quoting from out of uh, Proverbs 25. Again, Proverbs 25, verse 20, 21. Uh, if your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. So by showing mercy to your enemy, you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. That's something that is pleasing. You showing mercy is something that's pleasing in God's sight. A revengeful, venge, a revengeful, avenging uh, spirit, avenging spirit, is certainly not pleasing to God's sight. So, so that again can't be a proper interpretation. I'm going to do this because it's going to make the punishment against that person even worse. And where do you get this idea? Of what is this heap burning coals on his head? Where does that come from? Well, it's a, a, out of a ancient Egypt and a, a custom in, in that culture, where a person who wanted to demonstrate public contrition to show wrong for something that they had done, they would carry a pan of burning coals on their head to represent the pain and the shame they felt because they had done the wrong thing. And again, they're just publicly acknowledging that. So for us, uh, when we come to this heat burning coals upon their head, it's somewhat of a metaphorical statement. Uh, it, it doesn't mean that if we're kind and merciful to our enemies that they're actually going to put a physical pan, or we're actually going to put a physical pan of burning coals on their head. That's not what he's saying. It, it's a picture. It, it, it means that if our kindness and our mercy to our enemy uh, was going to cause them pain, not physical pain, but emotional pain, uh, uh, pain of remorse, uh, we're doing them good and, 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 and instead of doing them evil. It means that as a result of your kindness, your enemy is going to have an intense feeling of shame and guilt, burning anguish in their heart, burning anguish in their spirit, uh, with the hope that will make them, uh, again, your kindness, your mercy will make them feel shame and remorse to such an extent they will do what? Repent. They'll repent. It'll lead them to self-examination, self-condemnation. Again, cause them to lead them to repentance. That's the hope. So when somebody does you wrong, you show them great mercy, great grace. You show them kindness. And that kindness will shock them to the extent that they'll reconsider what they've done wrong. That will lead them to repentance and the knowledge of the truth. That's the idea. So again, how do you respond when somebody does evil against you? You never take your own revenge. You leave room for the wrath of God. You let, just, you let God deal justly with your enemy. When you have opportunity, you show your enemy mercy. If he's hungry, you feed him. If he's thirsty, you give him a drink. Perhaps, again, that will shame him into repentance. Again, mercy shown to your enemy will help, perhaps, make them stop and consider what they're doing, why they're doing it. And again, kind behavior for evil behavior might lead your enemy to the knowledge of the person of Jesus Christ. Because in reality, this is exactly how God treated us while we were his enemies. When we were sinners separated, when we were committing acts of evil against him, he dealt with us in mercy. And he won us to himself through love. Justice has been dealt with properly in our uh, for our sins through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ upon the cross. And God has granted forgiveness of our sins as Christ bore our sin in his body and took our place upon Calvary's tree. And it was God in his mercy that demonstrated to us his great love for us. And God again just satisfied his justice uh, through the person of Christ declared us just by raising him from the dead. God treated us in mercy.
So you come to the end here, and we're really where we were at the beginning of the chapter. Uh, the views never changed. At the end of the chapter, we're still looking where? Up. Right? We're still looking at the cross. We're still looking at the cross. We're still looking at God's mercies in our own life to us through the person of Jesus Christ. So how do you deal with somebody who does you wrong? How do you deal with those who are evil? Answer, just like your heavenly Father has dealt with you. And you and I have both wronged God. You and I have both sinned against him over and over and over and over again. And you and I both in our old Adamic nature are evil. And we have actively demonstrated that fact over and over and over again in our rebellion against God. But the Bible says that God demonstrates his love towards us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more, having then been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. So how do you deal with those? Your enemies, number one, you become a peacemaker. Number two, you leave room for God. You let God be God. You let him act in justice. He will pay back evil for evil. And instead of praying for justice for that person in a Christ-like attitude, you should be praying that God would act in mercy towards that person. The last one, you overcome evil with good. You overcome evil with good. Verse 21, do not, over, do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. Again, the negative and the positive. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So I've mentioned it several times. The, through the study, the standard that Paul sets down is, again, unnaturalistic and unrealistic for a natural man. It's impossible for the natural man to reach. Again, he's talking to Christians. Uh, the standard is uh, difficult even for the Christian. That means you can't walk in the flesh. You have to walk controlled by the person of the Holy Spirit always. But again, as you and I stand in view of the full view of the mercies of God towards us in Christ, we realize who we are now in Christ, saved, forgiven, justified, united, new creations in Christ. Therefore, we will not allow evil to defeat us, and we will not allow evil to overcome us. To be defeated by evil means that we are overcome by evil. <laughs> it means that we respond, with, we respond to evil with evil. But with Christ's help, we won't do that. We won't avenge ourselves. We're going to trust ourselves to God who loves us, God who cares for us, God who sent his son to die for us. We're going to trust ourselves to him cast our cares upon him. We're not going to overcome, be overcome by evil, but we're going to come overcome evil with good. So again, how do you deal with those who are actively against you? In the power of the Holy Spirit, that's the answer. In the power of the Holy Spirit with Christ-like love. And again, it's only possible when you're being controlled under the power of the person of the Holy Spirit. Only as you constantly look at how good God has been to us, how merciful God has been to us, how kind he has been to us. Only when we have a thankful heart towards the persons of God in Christ for their amazing grace can we forgive those who sin against us. To those who act towards us in evil, we can do that because God has granted us his forgiveness. We who once acted often towards him in evil. He's granted us forgiveness. He's overcome our sin our evil with his good. So again, moment by moment, day by day, 
Hour by hour. Keep our heads where? Always looking up. Always looking at the cross. Praying that God would give us his grace, his mercy, that we'd represent him well in a fallen world, uh, that we'd realize apart from him that we could do nothing. And may God grant us the mercy, the grace to understand that if it was not for his own goodness in our lives, if it was not for God's goodness in our lives, we'd just be like our enemies. We would just be like those who persecute us apart from the goodness and the grace of God. So we need to pray that God would give us a right view of our enemies, that we'd see them as they are, their lost souls, men and women who need Christ, dupes of the devils, uh, men who've had their eyes blinded by the, uh, the God of this world so they can't see the glory of the person of Jesus Christ. But we have. Not because we're smarter, not because we're wiser, only because God is merciful. And therefore, may God give us the great privilege to lead our enemies to the knowledge of the Savior. That evil will not triumph, but mercy and God's great love will triumph over evil. May God enable us to walk the way he commands us, to live in a manner that's pleasing to him, that demonstrates that we are changed, and live in a fashion that brings glory and honor to him always in all things. All right? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for this concluding look here at... uh, Romans 12, what a great chapter. <clears throat> Again, like going to the heart surgeon, your word exposes us for who we are and where we should be, and so help us to line up uh, biblically. To live out exactly who you have commanded us to be, who you've made us to be as new creations in Christ. And may we always keep our head up looking at your mercies in our own life so that we can demonstrate the transformed lives that is uh, uh, appealing to a lost world. We might live out uh, your love in a tangible fashion before a lost world. They might see something different in our actions that would point them to the person of Jesus Christ. Help us to, uh, in your power, overcome evil with good. Help us to represent you well. Thank you for this day of fellowship we've enjoyed in your word, the morning and the evening, and then thank you for the time of fellowship we're about to enjoy outside. I pray your blessing on our time in Christ's name. Amen.